0: Welcome to season two. I'm so excited. I can't believe it's already been one year and I have officially 35 episodes, multiple bonus episodes, and a whole bunch of Pitsy Pod. So thank you so much for listening and I really hope you enjoy season two. Today I'm talking with Dr. Roderick Dale. He's a specialist in Old Norse and Viking studies. That is a really, really neat title. The reason I started the podcast a year ago was to talk to scholars, amateurs, students, academics, podcasters, writers, bloggers. I mean, the list just keeps growing. It's so great. They share all their knowledge with us and their passion just shines through. And the topics here are not always Canadian, but I am. I'm a Francophone living in Canada. My name is Rosie and this is my podcast. I guess now we're going into Viking history, eh? Today I'm talking with Dr. Dale about a topic that he's been involved in for quite a while. So would you mind sharing with us your topic?
1: My topic is the Viking berserk that we know from Old Norse literature mainly. It's a topic that has exercised me for some time and is very popular with boys of all ages.
0: And how did you get interested in your topic today?
1: I first became uh, interested in the topic, actually, as roughly a 13-year-old boy doing role-play games, and I thought Viking berserks were absolutely the coolest thing imaginable. So when I was given the opportunity to research them for a PhD, I thought, yes, this is brilliant, I've got a really good handle on this, and it's going to be an absolutely fascinating topic. And I was right on the last bit, but... To be honest, going into it, I didn't really have a great handle on it. Once I started looking at the evidence, I realised that virtually everything I had thought about them was wrong.
0: Okay, so for those who might not know what a berserk is, what time period are we talking about or maybe what area of the world are we talking about?
1: Right, we're talking about um, Scandinavia, and we know about Berserkir. I always use the Old Norse because the modern English directs our thoughts in directions that are not helpful. So if I talk about berserkers, people immediately get a specific idea in their head, which then I have to go on to um, correct. But we know about them from Old Norse literature, which was written down in the 13th and 14th centuries, the Viking sagas, as most people know these stories. And they would have existed as real people in the Viking Age, which we can roughly define as between 750 and 800 through to about 1050 to 1100. So about a 300 year period.
0: And you've shared with us how you got interested in... Berserkers, and I'm sorry, I will pronounce it as that since I'm not an expert in Old Norse. Um, And, you know, you were interested when you were younger, so how are other people, how have they become interested?
1: I think a lot of people become interested in very much the same way. The Berserks, Berserkir, are the kind of the bad boys of the sagas, that's how people see them, and they are... If we were to say that the essence of drama is conflict, these guys have got so much conflict inherent in them in what most people see in the sagas. So they are kind of the ultimate dramatic Viking warrior. You could almost say they're the archetype of the pop culture Viking warrior. So that's how people get into them. Uh, That's how people become interested. They see these big guys which are all, broad axes and blood everywhere, foaming at the mouth, biting on their shields, howling, and generally being very scary. And they think, oh, this is mega cool. But most pop culture depictions don't go much beyond that, which is a shame because when we start looking into them, when we start looking at the sagas, which are medieval popular culture, we realise that the depictions are actually different, more nuanced, and are they present a different picture. One of the things that my research has highlighted to me is how much we need to actually try to put ourselves in the position of the medieval audience, what was in their personal experience, how they would have read these episodes that Berserk's feature in, and... That has become a key direction in my own research into the topic, which has led me to, somewhat disappointingly for my 13-year-old self, has led me to decide that the interpretation of Berserkir in the medieval sagas does not indicate that they went berserk in the modern English sense of the word. As I say, 13-year-old me would have been very disappointed. that they weren't these hyper-masculine supermen warrior types.
0: Absolutely. It seems as though that visual is a really big hook to get people interested.
1: I think it is. It's a massive hook. I mean, you imagine it. You imagine the cover of something like Warren Ellis's Wolfskin comic, which is basically blood, mad-looking bloke who's doing mushrooms and all the rest and killing everything in his path. And I mean, it hooks certain people in very strongly.
0: Absolutely. So, you mentioned going back and sort of looking through their eyes and their society. How did they talk about them?
1: Um, the first place that we actually learn about them, and the only place where the Old Norse word berserkr, which the plural is berserkir, exists, is in the medieval literature. The sagas of the Icelanders are the ones that most people know, especially Egil's Saga, which is about the Viking poet Egil Skotlgrimsson, who had his own encounters with Berserkir, and Njál's Saga, the Saga of Njál Thorgerson, which um, also features Berserk episodes. These are popular texts in translation. They exist in, for example, the Penguin Classics editions, but they're translations of the literature that survives from the medieval period, which is our primary source for the actual Berserkir themselves. When we try to understand the Viking Age Berserk, we're actually working backwards through time from the medieval material. The only surviving Viking Age references to these people are in a poem called Haraldskvei. It's the poem about Harold Fairhair. This poem mentions Berserkir and their cognate warrior types, the Ulfhednar, the wolfskins, in two stanzas. Uh, the first of which, in the Old Norse, goes, Grenyithu Berserkir, gudhrvas them au synnum, Emyithu Ulfhednar och isarn Uh, which translates roughly as berserkers bellowed, battle was about to begin, wolfskins wailed and waved their weapons. And that doesn't really tell us much about them. So although the word survives from the Viking Age, which indicates that there were people called berserkir in the Viking Age, everything that we actually know about them, everything that describes them comes from 200 years later.
0: It almost seems as though if you're looking at the side of storytelling, these would be fantastic oral tales. Do we have evidence that they were oral or were they just, you know, written down and we've lost contact?
1: Uh, Oh, that goes into 100 or 200 years worth of academic debate about the sagas, whether they're actually oral tales that have been written down or whether they were created afresh as the scribes wrote them into the manuscripts. I really don't want to get into that fight particularly, but I think that a good way to think about them in modern terms is as historical fiction, essentially writing down the history, but there's large elements of fiction in there as well. and. I wouldn't at all be surprised that scribes added, amended and changed elements to fit their narratives.
0: So you mentioned that the Icelandic sagas had the berserkers in them. What do we know about them? You have quoted a little bit, but what else do we know about them?
1: What we know about them from the Icelandic sagas is that... There are some apparently stock episodes in the sagas where a berserker appears at a farm uh, and challenges the farm owner to a duel, a holmgang, for the farmer's possessions and his either wife and and or daughter. So these are sexually predatory uh, figures who are also basically using the law to rob other people through their physical strength. That type of episode accounts for about one-third of the episodes featuring Berserkir in the Sagas of the Icelanders. It has been interpreted as an initiation rite in certain contexts, as was particularly popular in 1920s and 1930s Germany, where berserks were seen as part of a menelbunder, a sort of warrior brotherhood. But berserkers also appear in a variety of different guises in the sagas. They can appear as king's bodyguards. They can appear with no negative connotations at all, where it is just said that somebody was a great berserk in their youth, but then they settled down later in life. So their appearance in the sagas is actually more complicated than we would normally presume based on a lot of the literature written about them. And that is further complicated by the fact that from the 14th century in Norwegian uh, charters, we have a will stating that Brother Matthias Narveson, a monk in Oslo, wanted to be buried at uh, St. Holwarth's Church in Oslo, uh, near his kinsman, Ogmunder the Berserk. So, who knows what this guy Ogmunder was, but he was buried in the church, and he existed at some point, probably in the 14th century, maybe a little earlier. It's hard to tell from the context. So, he was a much later Berserk than is normally allowed for in the scholarship. And from roughly the same time as that will, there's another charter which states that Thorer the Berserk was paying tithes to the church on behalf of his wife and stepdaughter. So he was actually living in the late 14th century. And we haven't a clue who these people were, but Berserkir in the sagas have been very often linked to Odin, and it's often been said that they ceased to exist once uh, the Scandinavian countries became Christian, and yet here we are in the 14th century with two people being mentioned in Christian contexts
0: as Berserkir. Yeah, that's very interesting, and it makes you think that perhaps they weren't as violent all the time, or maybe... That changed over time, or there was different versions of Berserkers? I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep, different models of Berserkir. Berserkir model 1A or whatever, uh, existing early. I wish I could have categorized them that easily, because all of these depictions actually exist. Roughly simultaneously, the sagas are being written down in the 13th and 14th centuries. These guys with the by name Berserk are existing at the same time. And one of the things this led me to in my research was it took me away from the stereotypes and made me look further afield at what the word Berserk actually meant. And this was actually a key epiphany almost in the research. Thinking, one, to ask, did they go Berserk? And two, thinking, well, what does the word actually mean? What would it have meant to the medieval audience? And once we start looking at that, things get really interesting because it takes us away from the traditional view of the Berserk as a warrior of Odin. And it makes us think slightly differently about the episodes they're featured in. And their activities makes us think slightly differently about what happens when a berserker is described as biting on his shield and howling, for example. Can we interpret that as not actually being berserk, but are there other ways to look at what's going on here? And I concluded, getting to the conclusion before I get through the full story, which I for which I apologise, but I do like to start in media race, as it were. Um, I concluded that A, Berserkir did not go berserk, and B, that these episodes suggest that Berserkir were performing their rage. They weren't angry, they weren't battle-mad, they weren't furious. They were performing their rage, which led me to look back at the episodes in the sagas and to realise that actually, once you start looking at it, these people are not charging into battle frothing at the mouth. Uh, if we take the example from Eil's Saga, with which many people we, will be familiar, he fights a Besserk called Ljotr Blakey, Ljot the Pale. And the episode begins with the berserk challenging Egel to the duel because he thinks Egel will be more of a challenge for him than the young farmer that he's actually challenged. And the Berserk then proceeds to bite on his shield and howl. And Eil then says a few things to him and recites some poetry, uh, basically slighting the Berserk. And then they ask, are you ready? And the Berserk isn't ready yet. So there's a bit more of Eil dissing this uh, guy in poetry. I like to think of it as a Viking Age poetry slam in some ways. And then... There's a bit of back and forth like this before the battle act- before the duel actually starts. So, there is much in this episode there that suggests that the medieval audience did not think that this guy was going mad, and that suggests also to me that what he's doing is he's preparing himself and in a Viking age context that might mean that he's performing a spell or ritual that will, A, build up his adrenaline and bolster himself for the duel, but B, might also be designed to gain the favour of his god, Odin, so that Odin will protect him. And in that context, there is a verse in Hávamál, The Sayings of the High One, where Odin describes how he knows a spell that he can chant under a shield And to take men safely into battle and bring them safely back out of it. And while I can't directly link Berserkir to this spell, it is very tempting to look at the shield-biting as chanting under the shield. So the howling could be the spell in its own right, which is, at this stage, massively speculative still. But it offers an alternative interpretation.
0: Yeah, I mean... Even though this might be linked to a spell, I feel as though having sort of a war cry would still terrify your opponent, therefore still work really well, even if, you know, it's for perhaps other reasons. And maybe this became something they adopted even more strongly over time. I'm I'm not sure. (laughs)
1: I'm inclined to agree. For me, the best modern parallel, uh, one for the rugby fans is the All Blacks Hucker, which is a Mari Hucker that they perform before their um, rugby matches. And quite frankly, if I were opposing them, it, it it would be quite terrifying seeing these macho big rugby players slapping their thighs, pulling faces, and chanting this haka at you. In, and they're, sort of, they're in formation on the rugby pitch. So... If you don't know what it is, I urge you to go and find a YouTube video and watch it, because I think that this is almost, this is very close analogy to what was probably going on back then.
0: So their their preparation for battle seems to be very multi-layered.
1: I, it almost certainly was. I mean, it, it is something that we frequently forget looking back at the past, because we see it from such a distance that everything becomes homogenized. But in reality, their existence would have been much more complicated. There would have been much more layers to it. Behaviour that we see as aberrant would have made sense to them. It would have had cultural meanings that we just don't have access to now. This is the problem, really, is that while we do know the mythology and we do have the literature, what we don't have is all the assumed knowledge that the audience would have had to understand this. But certainly, in terms of development of the modern English word berserk, I don't think that we can project modern English meanings back onto the Old Norse. And one of the key ways of understanding what berserk meant for me was when I discovered that there were chivalric sagas, what, the, what are called rydra that were actually translated from European literatures to Old Norse in the 13th century. And in one of those, we get an episode where the old French word champion, champion, is translated as berserk. It's in Yvain's saga, which is the story of Yvain, the Knight of the Lion, from Chrétien de Troyes. what we see here is ivan is about to attack depending which version you read either two or three brothers who are giants or blaumen, men who are a stock type of monster in this type in this genre of literature and he has his lion with him and they're afraid that he's going to make the lion fight them because obviously they want to fight ivan as 2 to 1 instead of 1 to 1 And they say to him, we'll fight you, but your lion must not join in the fight and we don't want you to um, use it. So Yvain says to them, I didn't bring my lion with me to be my berserk, to be my champion. And once I'd found that reference, I started looking further afield and we get in Carlomagna's saga, which is the saga of Charlemagne and his knights, the Bishop Turpin, again another Christian, Is told by the hero Roland, "You've been a great berserker against the heathen men," and in this context again, it's quite clear that the word is being used to translate "champion." And from this, looking further afield in within the literature, and realizing that berserkers are very much featured more as king's bodyguards and people who fight duels, it's not a large leap to understand the medieval word as meaning champion in the sense of somebody who fights on behalf of a king or lord and will fight uh, judicial duels for him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, that, I was going to ask if there was other examples, <laughs> so you answered my question.
1: We do have examples of Berserkia directly related to Christianity. In Balam Sagog Josaphat, which is a Christianized version of the story of the Buddha, We have the hero Antonius, who is described as Jesus Christ's berserk. Uh, In it, it says, But Jesus Christ did not forget the jewel of his berserk. So you've got Antonius fighting the devils, is depicted as fighting a holmgang on behalf of Jesus Christ. And you also have uh, the hero Josipat, who is Hinungi Berserkir Guths, God's Young Berserk. So it's absolutely clear that the medieval audience did not consider berserkir to be exclusively Christian. There are plenty of contexts within which we find Christian Berserks.
0: That's really fascinating. And if they're writing about champions, using the word berserker, were there also other writings about berserkers in general, you know, either meeting them on the road somewhere and having a fight, I don't know, in locations other than Scandinavia?
1: They can be met in various different locations. The most common episodes occur in Norway and Iceland combined. But you do find people traveling abroad and encountering uh, groups of Viking berserks. So Berserkir, who are out on Viking voyages in various of the sagas, and there is a figure who's encountered in England in roughly the 9th century, where the character Gunnlöger encounters this Berserk and has a fight with him over some money which he'd lent him. So they are encountered outside Scandinavia, but predominantly they they are from within Scandinavia, And most Berserkir are Scandinavian, with the majority being Norwegian or Icelandic, and then there being a few Swedes as well who are Berserkir. There's a certain amount of Swedish bias, uh, anti-Swedish bias occurs within the sagas, where Swedes are seen as a bit like us, but smellier and dirtier and a bit more stupid from the perspective of the sagas, the scribes who wrote the sagas down, or the stories, which all come out of Iceland as the homeland. Norway is kind of homeland. But it's a little bit wilder, and then Sweden's just that bit worse.
0: So you've talked a little bit about the shield-biting and the frothing at the mouth. Was there anything else that we can see in here?
1: Right, well, the shield-biting and the frothing at the mouth are related to Bessersgangar which is often translated as the Berserker Fit or Berserker Fury. But etymologically, all it means is the Ganger of the Berserkr. And Ganger is a word that just means movement. It's only ever used to mean physical movement. I like to somewhat tongue-in-cheek, therefore, translate it as the Berserker Strut. But... What it suggests is a series of actions that are intimately related to Beserkir. Now this would include howling, which I've mentioned before, and which is a very common feature of depictions of Besserskangir. And it would include shield-biting, which again is a very common depiction of uh, Besserskangir. Related actions that they do include wading through fire unhurt and being invulnerable to iron, which frequently leads to them being beaten to death with clubs instead. Uh, but these latter two, I don't really see as being part of Bersetskangar. Bersetskangar itself is what I previously mentioned as being like a Maori hukka. uh It is the series of actions used to prepare themselves for battle and it's therefore problematic when people translate it as berserker fury simply because that already directs how we actually interpret the word.
0: So it seems as though some of these translations were very intertwined with whatever political agenda they had when they were translated. So you've mentioned already the Berserk word. When did it change and how did we get to know the word we know now today?
1: That almost certainly happened as a direct result of research into Berserkskonger. Basically, when Scandinavians in the 17th century started looking to their past to create a sense of nationhood, a sense of collective identity... Uh, They looked to the Icelandic sagas, and they encountered Berserkir, and they looked at Berserkskanga. They looked at these guys who are depicted as biting shields and howling, and said, Oi, that's not right. What's going on here? That doesn't seem reasonable to us. Uh, They saw it as aberrant behavior, and they looked for explanations. And so as a result of that, you get, for example, the uh, scholar Stefan Stefanius in 1644 publishing a uh, piece where he suggests that because the scholars of the day had already decided that Odin was, in fact, just a black magician, um, he describes him as Dominus Lemurum, a lord of devils, uh, then the Berserkir must have been people who were possessed by him. And he suggested that what's going on here is a form of demonic possession which immediately you start to see a kind of relationship to modern English berserk. And what happened over the next 350 years is that people continued this process of looking at Prasadskang as something aberrant and therefore looking for reasons why it might actually um, have happened and so, essentially, in a Christian context in the 17th century, you get people suggesting that it was demonic possession. Then, as you get into the 18th century and the Age of Reason, you get Olaf Celsius suggesting it's Salmi shamanic rituals at work. You get Samuel Erdman in 1784 suggesting that it was actually them imbibing Amanita muscaria, the fly agaric mushroom from which the very popular mushroom theory, which will not die, unfortunately, uh, originally stems. Uh, You get, for for example, the Lutheran minister Hans-Jakob Villa in 1786 suggesting that they actually just had bad hangovers. And all of these theories seek to explain Bessertzganger as having either an innate or an external cause. Uh, So and all of them explain it in terms of the prevailing ideology of the day. So as medical evidence uh, progresses in the 19th century, somebody suggests epilepsy, as psychiatry and psychology becomes popular, it's suggested that there's psychopathy at work here. Uh, following the First World War and all the research into shell shock and the experience of that, guess what this got explained as? Shell shock. Then, of course, in the late 50s, early 60s, mushrooms come into fashion for some reason, which I can't quite pin down. And then in the 90s, you start seeing it explained as PTSD. Uh, Jonathan Shea examined the experiences of soldiers in the Vietnam War who literally went berserk in battle, threw off their body armor and charged at the enemy, trying to kill as many of them as they could. And interviewed some who survived. And quite interestingly, those who had got, of those who had gone berserk and survived, um, a very large percentage of them could then have rage episodes triggered as a result of any kind of small frustration in their lives. So we can see that whatever the fashionable medical theory of the day, people are looking at Braserts Ganger to explain it in that way, but it all goes back to the original explanations which failed to consider how the medieval audience actually understood the word.
0: That's really fascinating. That's quite the evolution going from the sixteen hundreds with somebody saying, Hey, maybe this is, you know, linked to religious bad things. And then suddenly now, you know, everybody's studying it. And according to that, that's really, really fascinating. So I guess then the question is, what were they really like? You've talked a little bit about it, but are there any other things that you can add to this?
1: What were they really like? This is the difficult question to answer (laughs) Uh, because we have so little evidence It seems clear that predominantly they were champions in the censor, much like King Arthur's knights were his champions or Charlemagne's knights were his champions. But that's really function. I imagine that they were generally fairly aggressive because they are warriors and bodyguards. I imagine that some of the bad things described in the sagas could have happened. It's difficult to know, and I think that in pre-Christian Scandinavia, they almost certainly were seen as connected to the god Odin, but I would never go so far as to state that they were warrior shamans of Odin, because that completely ignores what we know about Scandinavian religion. It's more likely that they would have felt they had a more personal relationship to the god, and could therefore call on him more readily than any others because one of the things that we know about pre-Christian religion in Scandinavia was that it was quite personal. Luke John Murphy, who's studied this in detail, usually describes it as, if you think of Christianity as being the Harry Potter series, it's the canon. It is guided by the seven books. So that is the reality, and that is fairly fixed. Whereas pre-Christian religion in Scandinavia is the fan fiction. It's people's personal relationships to the gods without intercession from others. And it varies a lot from place to place. It's not monolithic, where Christianity, broadly seen, is kind of centralised. So in that sense, while they weren't shamans of Odin, they could have been connected to the gods, they could have led rituals related to the god... Because they were seen as having a special relationship to him.
0: When I hear about berserkers, I always think of the Lewis Chessmen. Did you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, the Lewis Chessmen. Uh, there are four warders, or what would be rooks in a modern chess set, which are depicted with their teeth showing over the tops of their shields. And I like to think of them as. Medieval pop culture depictions of berserkir um, because they relate quite closely to the saga descriptions, but the armor they're wearing and everything else is very clearly medieval. So they're not actually Viking Age depictions of berserks, but they are a visual expression of how a medieval audience might have viewed them.
0: So you've talked a little bit about berserks going to war or dueling so what was dueling back then do we have information on how that was done
1: uh we have bits of information about the dueling survive suggesting that it was a that a holmgang was a ritual duel and that it might therefore have occurred under the auspices of the gods um and we certainly see Egil Skotlegremsen sacrificing a bull at the end of one of his duels, for example, to celebrate the victory. Um, one area that is interesting is that in the 14th century, in the laws of Magnus the lawmender, there's actually one of the editions of it says that to be able to get married and to inherit, a person has to be holmfeir, which means able to fight a duel. And I have considered that, given that this would be within the experience of the Saga audience, it might actually lead into another way of accessing how they interpreted these dueling episodes. I mentioned previously that some have interpreted them as initiation rituals, but it would also be very easy to see them as episodes where the audience would recognize that a young man is being tested to see if he can actually fight a duel, and therefore, is he therefore worthy of being treated as an adult? So when we look at these saga episodes, at the dueling episodes in the sagas of the Icelanders, frequently, the young man goes to the farm, everybody's miserable, there's obviously something going on, and it takes ages, but eventually somebody will say to the young man, oh yeah, there's a Berserk coming and he's challenged the owner of the farm to a fight. And then the young man has to stand up and say, right, I'll fight him instead of you because you're feeble and I'm not, and goes into the fight and wins. So I have to ask myself, was this law in the minds of the Saga audience when they were hearing these dueling episodes? And does this suggest that there's another incarnation of the Berserk where in reality... A member of the family would perform the role of the berserk, and there would be a mock duel for the young man to win, and it so so it would become a coming of age rite. And in this context, it's very interesting to note that there are two felt masks from the harbor at Hedeby, which um, in Denmark, which appear to be sheep or something like that. But you're wondering if there's a a, a kind of a mumming aspect to this rite of passage where a young man can earn his sword.
0: That's really interesting. And you've mentioned some law codes. So I guess it was within the structure of certain laws?
1: Yes. uh, The law I mentioned uh, basically is within the structure of laws about who can be considered an adult, who can be considered able to inherit from their parents, uh, and who can be therefore allowed to marry. So it's quite clear that there are things that would need to be tested and the saga audience might therefore have interpreted what's going on in the sagas from their own cultural context that included these. And in that respect also it's interesting to note that The Icelandic law code, Graugos, includes a law specifically banning Bersersgángar. So you're not allowed to perform Bersersgángar. And if you do, you will suffer the lesser outlawry, and anybody else round you will also suffer the lesser outlawry. This has often been interpreted as suggesting that people had to control those who basically lost it but it occurs within a section that is about Christian laws, which reinforces the idea that Berserskangar was a pre-Christian ritual. And these are the only references we actually have in the laws. And each of them, one in a Norwegian context, the law of Magnus the lawmender, and one in an Icelandic context, offers tantalizing clues to how people in this period actually perceived Berserskir.
0: And you've mentioned looking at Berserkers through the audience of the time. What do we know about the audience of the time? Did you want to elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Uh, The audience of the time varies. It depends where you're looking. Uh, Sagas were popular entertainments in Iceland, and it's often thought that they relate to the Icelandic Kvällvarka, the evening wake, where somebody would read a story or tell a story while everybody else was doing their evening chores. Uh, So they're hugely popular in Iceland. And it's quite likely that basically the saga audience in Iceland was everybody. Everybody would listen to these sagas because they weren't, they weren't books that were written down that we read quietly like they are today. There would be They were read aloud. Perhaps there would even be an element of performance, depending upon who's actually reading them. And in Norway, we know that certainly the chivalric sagas were hugely popular in the Norwegian court. So, again, you have an audience. They would have been recited for the audience. Håkon Hokanson, for example, when he was dying, had his favourite saga read to him on his deathbed. Uh, as a, I don't know whether it's to distract him or just for uh, entertainment while he was dying. But again, there's the element of performance comes in here, the element of of the reading of it. And it's quite likely that basically they were the pop culture of the day, that different stories might have been more popular with different levels of society, but that everybody heard sagas
0: I guess we don't really know how they were presented, but we do have some clues, as you've said.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, we don't know if there was musical accompaniment or whether they were read aloud from a text in the medieval period. Uh, Presumably earlier, these stories would have been oral and recited. And we don't know if they did the voices, for example. There's few clues to that. Uh, There are probably more clues for how poetry was recited just based on meter and everything, but certainly they were a form of entertainment and everybody would have heard sagas. And I like to think of people being a bit rowdy and maybe shouting back at the person who's telling the story or um, generally joining in somehow, but... It's just a shame that there's not more information survives about performance. People loved art back then. I mean, look at Viking Age art styles, look at the detail and look at how it's used and imagine what didn't survive as well. And one of the things that we forget, because we're looking at it from such a distance, it looks homogenous But actually, you've got a lot of individual actors doing their own thing with their own motivation. And they were people, they lived, they loved, they fought, they died, just like we do. Their worldview wasn't necessarily the same as ours. And many of the things they would have done would fit Perfectly within their worldview, but if they did them in front of us, we might look at them and go, What are you doing? But then they would think the same of us. They would look at things that we take for granted and they would interpret it from their worldview as aberrant behavior that's, yeah, it's just, it's just different. If you need a modern example, look at, I don't know, pick two societies that are miles apart. And, um, just compare them. People in England do not necessarily think the same as Canadians.: <laughs> Yeah, well, as Canadians, yes. <laughs> I was trying to find an example much further afield that would be more obvious, but but quite frankly, yes. I mean, I live in Norway now, and people in it, Norway, do not think the same as people in England. There is much that's similar, but there are also basic assumptions that are massively different.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's just the interesting section of culture, right?
1: (laughs) Absolutely, yes, yeah. But it also means that people in Iceland in the Viking Age probably did not think exactly the same as people in southern Norway who thought differently from people in northern Norway who thought differently from people in different areas of Sweden and so on. There are a multiplicity of cultures there that because we're looking at it from a different distance through limited sources, we tend to homogenize as the Vikings and they express themselves in their own way. But that doesn't necessarily survive in the records that we have now. And it, what it does mean for me is that a berserker in Iceland might not have been the same as a berserker in Norway, for example.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's frustrating. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So I wanted to jump into possibly fun facts. You sent me a fun fact. I'd love it if you could share it with us.
1: Yes. Um, there was one time where a friend and I decided that we wanted to go and swim in the Arctic Ocean. So we jumped on the next plane and went as far north in Norway as we could, which was Akerfjord on uh, Seraya north of Hammerfest. And we swam in the Arctic Ocean because we could.
0: And was it cold?
1: It was freezing. <laughs> <laughs> this was October.
0: Well, that's why.
1: (laughs) Well, no, the sea had had all summer to warm up. So it wasn't as cold as it could have been, but it definitely woke us up.
0: Was it like a polar dip where you went on the ice and then jumped into the water or was the water free flowing?
1: Well, the water was free flowing. I've not quite gone ice swimming yet. Um, It was before there's any ice on the water or anything like that. But ice swimming has to be next, I guess.
0: Well, you'll have to come to Canada. We have polar dips all the time in winter.
1: (laughs) I'll give it a shot.
0: That would be the next step. Absolutely. And I had another question that kind of fits into the fun fact. So if you had a time machine where you would be safe and you would come back safely, where would you go? Who would you meet? Or what event would you like to partake in?
1: Oh, I'm not good at that kind of decision. There are (laughs) so many events I'd like to see and so many things that I would like to know more about, but I actually feel would probably make me sick if I saw them. There's nobody specific I would like to meet. I think the the great men of history, as it were, are overrated, and I would probably hate them all. What I would like to see, however, is part of Viking Age Scandinavia, where I could actually learn and understand what a Berserk really was. And I would probably then just have to laugh at my own scholarship and everybody else's scholarship and go, oh, my, we got it completely wrong. For me, the key would actually having to be be there long enough to understand the cultural context of what's going on.
0: Well, there's no timer on your time machine. It's it's free. It's fine.
1: <laughs> ah, well, as long as there's plenty of antibiotics to treat me of whatever happens to be there, i will be great. Yes.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And... I guess I also wanted to mention, so you're working on a book based off your thesis, which I will put a link for the thesis download for people who are interested in learning more. Did you want to talk a little bit about your book and what you're doing with it or where you're going with it?
1: Yes, I'm updating my thesis to be published by Routledge. Um, It should be published next year, and essentially what I'm doing is I've taken my thesis, I've Refined my ideas. I'm incorporating new material because people are always writing new material about Berserkir and drawing together various ideas that have occurred to me since into what will be a more readable, more accessible, but still scholarly book about Berserkir that presents uh, the core elements of my ideas more clearly.
0: Absolutely. I really can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. This was really fascinating. And I know that you love this topic and you've really looked into this topic. So I appreciate you sharing all this knowledge in sort of a condensed version for us until we can get our hands on your book.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been great to actually uh, talk about it again. Bye Bye now.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. What a different way to look at Berserker and how the word evolved and how the ideas evolved. It's so fascinating to see changes through time. I don't have a book recommendation today. However, I do suggest you read his PhD paper, which is linked in the show notes and on the blog post. Until his book comes out, that'll have to do. You can catch me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at historya. You can also send me a message or go to the website, history.com. If you have a moment to rate this podcast on your podcasting platform of choice, that would be amazing. It helps people find me and it helps me connect with other new guests. And I know you've heard it for a year, but I would like to thank my husband, Jamie, our kids, our family, our friends, and the teachers I've had along the way. Without you, I wouldn't have been adventuring through history. Un grand merci.